0: We spend a lot of time on building the budget, and we look at it from several different angles. We look at it top down, but we also build it bottom up. And we try and make sure that, to make sure that both of those kind of tie
1: together that it, and it, that it makes sense. In the world of business finance, things change fast. Welcome to the Leaders of Modern Finance, a show where today's finance innovators discuss what the future holds. Learn from experts in the field as they explore emerging finance trends, insights, and more. This episode is brought to you by Stampley, the leading accounts payable automation platform. With Stampley, collaborate easily and efficiently with invoice approvers, vendors, and anyone involved with purchases. This helps you quickly resolve issues and questions, resulting in 5x faster approvals. Contact us to see why users love Stampley and schedule a demo at stampley.com.
2: Welcome, everyone. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders of Modern Finance. My name is Ben Murray, and I'd like to welcome Guy Melamed, CFO and COO of Veronis. Great to have you here, Guy.
0: Thanks for having me, Ben.
2: So let's kick this off. Before we dive into the questions, tell us a little bit about yourself and Veronis.
0: As you mentioned, I'm the CFO and COO for Veronis Systems, Inc. We're a publicly traded company that deals with cybersecurity, but thinks about cybersecurity in a slightly different way. There are a lot of cybersecurity companies that try and protect the perimeter, try and protect the border. We are kind of taking a different approach that somehow, someday someone will be able to get in and kind of go through that border. And we try to protect the second most valuable asset that every organization has, which is sensitive data. First asset obviously being a company's employees. So. Not only do we kind of go through that assumption that someone will go through that border, but we're also trying to protect against employees from within that take data and take it, give it to competitors or kind of move to their next job. And just before they give their resignation letter, start saving information on their hard drive. And that's kind of the approach that we've taken. We've been public since 2014. Uh, A little bit about myself, I did my undergrad and master's degree at Boston College. Got a soccer scholarship, and that that was kind of the reason I, I studied in the U.S. I was born and raised in Israel, and after my kind of completing my academics, played some soccer, and we, we can touch on that if you if you'd like later on. But after kind of my soccer gig, started working in accounting. Worked with KPMG um, in the U.S and then moved back and worked with Ernst & Young in Israel. And then after a couple of years, got pulled in. And I, I've, I've been with Veronis for about 11 years, and it was a great journey, and it also feels like we've just now started.
2: That's great. Appreciate the background. And then we'll definitely dive into the athletics and the finance and accounting connection here. But let's talk shop first. So you're public that you mentioned, so we can actually get some revenue data out of you. But tell us, we'd like to size up you know your company so we can understand your finance and accounting structure. So how big are you revenue size right now?
0: We just have ARR of over $400 million. Um, our guidance for the 2022 year on ARR is just below $500 million, give or take. And, mm-hmm. and our expectation, we have 2,200 employees and over 7,000 customers basically trying to protect organizations where the sweet spot is companies with more than a thousand employees, but really every company with more than 20 employees has sensitive information that they're trying to protect, whether it's your payroll file, your IP, your plan on how to protect against cyber threats, any PowerPoint presentation that has true meaningful value for the future is information that a competitor or malicious organizations would like to have. And also not to even talk about ransomware. There's a lot of organizations out there that are experiencing ransomware attacks and those attacks have actually increased significantly in the last couple of quarters, especially with what's going on with the Ukraine and Russia.
2: Yeah, definitely. So interesting. So about 400 million AR right now, guiding to about 500 or so, roughly 2,200 employees, 7,000 customers. I assume those are global. So. You're targeting most geographies around the globe, I'm guessing. Yep. Okay. And then, so supporting a public company, 2,200 employees, 7,000 customers, a lot of mass there. So tell us a little bit about your team structure and size. So tell us what departments roll up under your office.
0: So as wearing kind of the CFO hat, it's obviously kind of the whole accounting and closing the books and that's the bread and butter including kind of the legal department that sits under me but at the same time with a coo hat there are functions out there that deal kind of more in the operational side and supporting the sales team so i have on my team there's about 120 team members and i would say that it's i think that what's important to kind of note is that because veronis is such a metric driven type company kind of wearing both hats makes a lot of sense We always try to analyze everything and anything we can possibly get our hands on. And we always try to verify hunches and feelings with data, because you don't always, they don't always correlate what you think is not always what's supported by the data. And this company has always been very focused on gathering as much data as possible about anything it's whether it's the number of meetings that our Salesforce has conversion rates, anything you can imagine. So wearing both of those hats um, has worked very well at the company. And I enjoy doing both roles.
2: Yeah, we'll get into the COO in a second for sure. So accounting, legal staff, about 120. What about any sort of FBA budgeting forecasting function within that?
0: So uh, the 120 includes everything. It includes, yep. includes the IR, includes legal, includes FBNA, includes commission, sales ops, uh, it really kind of includes the entire team. Including kind of the, the accountants and controllers and all, all. Okay.
2: Okay. Interesting. So yeah, tell us about. So I saw in your title and I noticed that right away CFO and COO. So tell me, obviously the COO is there for a reason. So how? Tell me about that portion because right, we know as CFOs that we have to be very operational in nature. You know, so it kind of comes with the territory. But tell me, you know, are there different expectations having the COO attached to the CFO title?
0: I think it was very natural at Veronis. I don't know how it works at other companies and I've seen some CFOs that kind of wear both hats. It was, I'll be honest, initially I didn't really want that additional title, but the CEO, Yaki Feidelson kind of came to me and said, you're taking it over. I couldn't say no, but but I think that in retrospect, it, it worked out very well because I try to combine kind of the analysis side and the FP&A side and kind of supporting the sales teams as much as we can. And, you know, when we build the comp plans, it's not I'm not just as a team. We don't build the comp plans just in the eyes of finance. We build it in the eyes of finance, but also in the eyes of sales of what would make the most sense of what needs to drive kind of the business in, in the years ahead. And we always try to make the comp plan as fair as possible without putting targets that aren't achievable. That's been kind of in the forefront of our philosophy of building a comp plan and I think we we have plans and structure that allows reps that do the right things to do very well for themselves. And it's kind of the, the philosophy of trying to win together and making sure that that build of the plan, and this is just one component, mm-hmm. uh, is done in a very delicate and thoughtful way.
2: Yeah, that's a great point because early stage maybe CFOs, or there's no CFO at all, CFO at all in, in early stage companies, but you get so involved in compensation planning and definitely sales planning and how that aligns, making sure that's fair. So a really interesting point. And I love your statement, hunches don't always correlate with the data, you know, which leads us into this next question of then what numbers do you report to the board? What are those metrics, those KPIs that you report monthly, say quarterly to the board that's really meaningful both internally and not just living in a PowerPoint presentation every quarter?
0: So I think the information that we provide to the board is obviously all the KPIs that are provided to the street. They very much are tied. We provide to our uh, investors and analysts a lot of KPIs, whether it's the ARR number that we started providing when we initiated the transition from perpetual to subscription and we can touch on that in a second but we provide how many licenses have been sold to, co- to companies with more than 500 employees four or more licenses six or more licenses obviously we provide to the board kind of the actual versus budget in terms of the expense side and the expectations from a, a revenue side and i think that you know that there's a couple of ways to think about building a budget there are companies that kind of build a budget, but never look at it again until the next year when they need to build the next budget. They There are companies that build a budget as a framework, but kind of have a lot of flexibility to go over. And I can tell you that the way we kind of build the budget is is we spend a lot of time on, on building the budget. And we look at it from several different angles. We look at it top down, but we also build it bottom up. And we try and make sure that to make sure that both of those kind of tie together that it and it, that it makes sense. And I can tell you that a lot of our decisions are based on our budgetary assumptions when we start the year, and we obviously take different scenarios and give ourselves the flexibility to make the necessary investments. But when you think about us as a company, you know, we've been very, very focused on top line growth, but also bringing some of it to the bottom line. So you know, when you talk to investors today, a lot of them are talking about operating margin for the first time with companies. And that's definitely not something that is new to us. We've always been focused on growing in a very responsible way. Because I don't want to say easy, but companies that invest a lot of money, but don't have the leverage, it's one way to grow, but it has its challenges. And if you want to make sure that you're growing in a sustainable way you have to make sure that you grow in a very responsible way that doesn't break kind of the whole structure
2: okay that makes sense and i want to talk about your budget process briefly but one more thing about the numbers to the board any traditional assess metrics that you're reporting you know especially you know so much sales compensation planning you know do you look at cac paybacks anything in the sales and marketing efficiency area
0: so one of the things that is kind of you know when a company it takes it a long time to transition from perpetual to subscription, it gives itself time to build into those metrics. And because we move so quickly, some of those metrics that relate to SaaS companies don't really fit because we still have maintenance of perpetual that we're still renewing with our customers. We haven't forced customers to converge from perpetual to subscription. We're just selling them additional licenses as subscription. So some of those SaaS metrics are in a way too early to provide, but we obviously talk about the renewal rates and we give all the color that's needed in terms of the metrics that relate to subscription companies.
2: Okay. That makes sense. And then budgeting. I know you and I have been through a lot of budget seasons, but there are a lot of finance leaders who are you know, maybe taking on their first budget season and owning the budget for the first time. Tell us a little bit about that process. Does it start Maybe initially in the summer with maybe strategic planning, like looking out three years, which then helps you set the targets for next year. And then how long is your budget season and when does that occur?
0: So it definitely starts in in the summer and we start building kind of the framework after looking at what was in the framework in previous years. Mm-hmm. So it always is in context. One of my recommendations for someone that's doing the budget for the first time, is make sure you don't get in the weeds too much without taking a step back and looking at kind of the overall number. Because sometimes you have kind of desires that won't coincide with additional budgetary items that that you kind of, if you do from the bottom up. So that's why I was talking before about making sure that both of them converge. You need to have kind of the framework and the guidelines that fit your desires as an organization. But at the same time, you have to make sure that you account for the unexpected as well. There's always curveballs that come from different directions and trying to anticipate as many as possible is always a good thing.
2: Okay. So summer planning, thinking high level, big picture, and then the hands-on detailed budgeting process. I mean, how many months you know does that take? Is that you know, if you present to the, you know, when would you present the budgets to the board and then working back from that? Like how long is that budget season that your fp team is working on?
0: We would present the budget to the board in our, in February, mm-hmm. um, as we report our Q4, just before we report Q4, we have a, a board meeting, but obviously we have conversations with them and kind of on the framework. And when you think about kind of the budget itself, if you take February as kind of the point where it's approved, you can take back three to six months Mm -hmm. of work on on the budget with all of its components and talking to the different departments and getting the information and thinking about what are the strategic initiatives that are expected in the year ahead and what are the investments that are expected to be part of the, the years to come and at the same time when you look at our kind of expenses a lot of them have to do with headcount and actual employees so we actually put every employee name with their exact salary as part of that budget so it's not a it's not an estimate mm-hmm. it's an actual line by line budget that is extremely comprehensive
2: which leads us perfectly into the next question yeah 2200 employees forecasting that budgeting that name by name each wage rate so tell us a little bit about your tech stack to manage an org of this size you know 7,000 plus customers global organizations so what's the tech stack in, in your area
0: So before I I give you some of the names that, that we're using, I think what I've learned with many conversations, both with the IT and also talking to other CFOs, whether it's in the cybersecurity space or even in different industries, is that I'd say the biggest challenge is making sure that everyone is talking about the same, in the same objective manner, about a definition even, because you can get into the room with the IT folks, you talk about A, they talk about B you think that you found a way to make it a B and you get out and everyone, every side has a different understanding of what was discussed. And it, it really is, I can't emphasize enough how many times we had to go back and rediscuss what everyone understood was pretty obvious just because every side looks at it slightly different, whether it's the finance side or the technological side. So defining the objective and defining the terms And making sure that there is one truth I'd say is the number one item before you even go into the, the technology. And I'd say that the second thing that I've learned is that before you run to to automate a process, you have to make sure that it's done manually for a good period of time to make sure that everyone feels good with that process. Because I've seen a couple of times where we ran into an automated process. And by the time that was ready we already moved to a different process because it made more sense. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't put too much time, energy, and money in building a process that you don't feel comfortable is here to stay. Um, because the worst thing that can happen and frustrate your team and the, obviously the it team is that they work hard and they develop something. And by the time you get there, you already moved. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I've always said that the most important department when we moved from perpetual to subscription was the IT and the supporting application team because you can move as quickly as you'd like if you don't have the team to support you in trying to help with the automation. And this was something we had to do in an automated way in, in whether it was the quotes for the sales team or other items that we had to make sure are not done manually. If you didn't have their support, there's no way we could have move that quickly. So before I kind of talk about some of the applications we use, I think those are two important points that I've learned are extremely important before you kind of talk about the applications.
2: Oh, that's great. And I love that great point. Before you automate the process, run manually first. Yeah. You've got to know where it's coming from, how it works before you try to lay some technology on top of that. So yeah. What are some of those key components then in your tech stack?
0: So obviously, there's the Salesforce side on on for the sales team, and, and we do a lot of a lot is tied to the Salesforce, whether it's kind of the, the, the quoting and the whole tracking of the opportunities and all that fun stuff. On the finance side, we work with Microsoft BI, and a lot of that is done through dashboards that we can track the tracking is. Very important for us, because like I said before, we're a very metric driven type company, so there's a lot of dashboards, but here's something that I don't know how common this is, but I think it's an important point. I can't emphasize enough how you can make your life easy with automating Excel and I'm no expert in Python and all that fun jargon that, but we have members that are very good at automating some of those reports. And it saves a ton of time, whether it's kind of building PowerPoint presentations that can happen in an automated way, if you have the right database, or sending emails. We have weekly emails that are sent automatically as a report. And if you can automate 50 emails, then you save save a lot of time for your team. So thinking about how you can automate it, not necessarily through a sophisticated application, is something that is worth investing in.
2: Okay. That makes sense. What about say just your general ledger accounting? What do you You work with, works with NetSuite? Okay. And then say when you're budgeting 2200 names line by line, do you have any sort of CPM or forecasting budgeting software?
0: So we've actually built a forecasting model in Excel. I okay. uh, found that to be the most flexible in kind of the different scenarios that we, it's very dynamic in the way we plan for different scenarios. And I think looking at some of the models that were offered to us, it was much more restrictive. So we wanted to leave that flexibility. And we have many, many versions of in, in Excel before we land on that one final version.
2: Yeah, makes sense. So let's now talk a little bit about your career. Usually we see, hey, we studied finance accounting, got our first job, moved up to ladder, became CFO potentially, but you started with an athletic route. So you went to Boston College and I assumed you studied accounting.
0: I did. Yeah, I did. My undergraduate degree in accounting and I did my MSA as master's degree in accounting. Master yeah.
2: Mac. Yep. And then, so you didn't go right into accounting. So it sounds, tell us a little bit about that. It sounds like you started a career in soccer first before jumping back into accounting.
0: So I don't know. I, I when you think about kind of my path, when I moved to the US, I it was after completing a three-year mandatory service in the Israeli army so I, I moved to Boston college as a, as a older freshman being 21 years of age. And I, my, my notion was that I'm moving to study and learn and kind of finish my undergraduate degree and, and still kind of maintain my second love, which was soccer. I didn't want to give it up. I knew that in Israel, if I wanted to combine both, it would be extremely more challenging and I just, I wasn't ready to do that. But my thought process was that if I moved to the U S. I get my undergraduate degree. I got a scholarship from, from Boston College, which was great. But I also kind of at the back of my mind said to myself, okay, after I finish those four years, I'm gonna go to the corporate world and I'll probably do accounting because always interests me kind of the, the language of accounting and, and it, I think it's, it's such a f- phenomenal tool to have no matter if you w- ever wanna do accounting, I'd still recommend you Kind of learning it because it gives you such a great perspective about businesses and and it's a, it's a new highway that you learn to kind of maneuver in and I highly highly recommend it. It gave me a, a tremendous a lot of toolkits to to use in my day to day life. So my thought process was that I'll kind of go to one of the big fours and kind of move in in the corporate world, but playing in in playing soccer in BC had such a great experience
1: and as I was getting
0: closer junior year and senior year it started to kind of I got some I got a lot of feedback that there is a chance that I I will get drafted in the MLS and I didn't know if if that would happen or not but I wanted to keep my options open so kind of loaded classes during my fall year my fall semester senior year and completed my undergraduate degree basically in three and a half years and actually got drafted during that winter by the Colorado Rapids. So couldn't give up that opportunity. It was very exciting, very exciting to, to kind of go through that journey, played there and I still had an offer from KPMG. So I put that on hold, tried to play, enjoyed it very much. I can tell you that the salary in, in the MLS is significantly lower than public accounting. So I was getting kind of older realized that i don't have you know that much time to continue to play and the corporate world isn't waiting for me so i had to make some uh, some decisions and i consciously made a decision to go to the exciting world of of the big four and put aside uh, soccer and you know it was a great a great journey i really much enjoyed soccer but i i wasn't like depressed or i wasn't frustrated that i i stopped playing i kind of moved to the next gig and enjoyed studying for the CPA exam, which was extremely challenging while I was working, got certified, finished my worked with KPMG in both Boston and Chicago, mostly in Chicago at the time. And after I completed my, my CPA, um, about a year and a half later, I, I decided to move back to Israel and got a position in Ernst & Young and worked there. Was covering a lot of public and, and private companies. So I had two publicly traded companies and about 40, 50 privately, uh, private companies. So I got to see a lot and one of those companies was Veronis, So I got to to know the company from the other side and eventually I got pulled in. So it was a fascinating journey that I know wasn't kind of the regular journey, but every piece of it gave me something for that journey.
2: No, that's great. Now, what was that transition like from, right you're not working in a cube. you're not going to an office as a professional athlete. You know, was there a bit of a transition going back into the office, and then, oh my gosh, I've got to remember all my accounting that I studied in undergrad. Was that kind of seamless, or did it take a little time to get you know into that rhythm of working in an office again?
0: So I re- I never really kind of stepped away from the studying, even when I was playing because I was doing some of my masters, even though it was remote, but I was working on that, I was working on kind of the CPA, getting my actually certification with all the exams that that entails. So I never felt that I was completely detached from kind of the studying part. And in a way that really helped from a balancing perspective, because I was obviously playing, enjoying it. There was a lot of travel involved as part of playing in the MLS. I was doing camps. Soccer camps, but it but I also had the studying part that kind of kept me very focused, so I never felt that this was a complete detachment from kind of the world and and now I need to be thrown back into a cube and I, I felt that it wasn't that challenging, at least not for me
2: okay, no, that's great, really interesting, knowing that maybe down the road you you accounting still sitting out there, you're just not completely ignoring you know that world and studying on the side, which is really interesting so. And then, right, get your CPA and then go into audit. You didn't go right to Verona, so you went into audit first, you know, with some big accounting firms. And do you feel that audit experience prepared you to then jump in-house and then eventually become a CFO?
0: Oh, absolutely. I can't emphasize enough how many tools I received just from going through this audit kind of path. And I can tell you that one of my kind of biggest junctures was when I completed my my time with kpmg in the us moving back to israel i had some offers to become controller an assistant controller in 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 companies in israel but and some of them were at higher salaries that were offered than than kind of the public accounting route but i felt that i had to learn kind of the ins and outs of kind of that that job before i would go out to the to provide services as a finance figure In a company, and I can't, I can't emphasize how much that helped me. Uh, Working with Ernst and Young, I worked there for about three and a half years. I got my CPA in Israel. I I saw so many companies. I saw so many, uh, so many elements. And and I think one of the biggest differences between accounting in in Israel and accounting in in the U.S. is the the budgets that are associated. So because the budgets in Israel are lower in scale. You get to do way more because it's more hands-on, you're kind of more involved in those companies. And I ended up being kind of a manager in Ernst & Young and kind of juggling 40 private companies and two publicly traded companies was a lot. I put in a lot of hours. I worked in some cases, 20 hours a day. But every single cycle, every time you went through kind of the, the whole closing the books. Whether it was quarterly or annually, you learn another element. And I think it gave me a lot.
2: That's great. So from soccer field, then to CPA, to audit. And now let's move back to Verona's, And this is really interesting because it sounds like when you started there, you were selling software under that traditional perpetual license model and then made a switch a couple of years ago to subscription-based and it's really interesting. I work with a lot of SaaS companies where they just were founded and it's SaaS right away. Didn't know the perpetual world, but there's still a lot of companies going through that transition or yet to go through that transition. So tell us a little bit about that transition and some key takeaways from that experience.
0: Absolutely. So we, as you said, we started our model under the perpetual model and it made a lot of sense. You know, When we went public in 2014, we had 10 licenses to sell so selling to a customer one two or three licenses in that first initial purchase showing them value and then selling them additional licenses worked very well the land and expand under the perpetual model worked perfectly well and and there was no reason to make any changes but between 2015 and 2018 we came out with a significant number of licenses we had about 16 additional licenses that came out and many of them were geared towards automation So the customer didn't necessarily need to increase their headcount in order to consume more of the licenses. And we started hearing from the field that customers want to consume more of the platform, but there's this sticker shock with Perpetual. So our selling process is very visual. You know, If I told you that you had a million files open to everyone in the company, you'd probably kind of shake your head, you'd move on. You wouldn't pay that much attention. But if I showed you files that you know, payroll file, equity file, PowerPoint present, your financial statements before they're even published and would show you that everyone in the organization has access to those files, that's where your jaw drops. And that's where the conversation becomes very, very interesting. So an interesting fact, do you know how many files a new employee has access on it on their first day?
2: I'll let me just guess. I'll guess a thousand files.
0: Much, much higher. Yeah. 17 million files on day one, because employees have kind of the everyone access. So because this is such a visual process, our Salesforce would do kind of that risk assessment. We offer a risk assessment to customers. It takes up to 90 minutes. We do an installation. Then we show them a report of how many files are open to everyone in the company. What are the sensitive files that are open? And they would do that risk assessment, but they would still send out quotes with three or four licenses max. They would never want to go above that number because they were afraid with that sticker shock component. So in 2018, we started thinking about whether it would make sense to change to a subscription model. You'd have a lower entry point if you sold the same number of licenses, but The hope was that customers would want to consume more of the licenses up front. So instead of buying two or three licenses or four licenses max in that first initial purchase, they might actually consume more, be better protected. Because like I said before, we had those 16 additional licenses. So we had a total of 26 licenses and we worked a lot with an outside consultant that helped us kind of build the comp plan. We put a lot of time and effort of thinking of all the small components before kind of announcing the transition and we announced it at the beginning of 2019. Now one of the things that we did in preparation was talk to a lot of companies that went through the process but we also studied companies that had issues as they were transitioning because we wanted to understand what worked for the ones that were successful but not less important we wanted to make sure what were the issues that prevented other companies from moving And those were lessons that were extremely important as we were getting ready to launch. The companies that were successful, it usually took them between four to six years to complete a transition. We were hoping to do it quicker, but even we didn't realize how quickly the transition is gonna happen. So we announced it at the beginning of 2019 and we were able to complete the transition in five quarters. So in, in a very, very quick pace, We changed the comp plan to kind of support the change and the strategy that the company was trying to to move in. And I think that was an important part, the technology, obviously it was kind of unleashing the potential of the platform, allowing customers to consume more. It was just a natural fit for our customers, which really helped us move that quickly. But we also thought about the comp plan in a very strategic way. And I can tell you that one of the other pillars that I think were critical In making sure that we were able to move that quickly was the fact that everyone from management was completely on board. Obviously, the initial, the first quarters were very, very challenging and it's a big change for reps. So we had to make sure that everyone was on board and people that didn't like the transition from the sales side. It was okay. We we parted ways and moved on. I think it's better to do that early in the process than Kind of wait seven, eight, nine quarters, and then realize that it's not working and and then part ways. So I'd say those were kind of the the highlights of the transition and why it worked so well.
2: Okay. And then when you say completed the transition five quarters, that was outlining the strategy, the technical plan, sales comp planning, how you'll sell it. So then you're ready in in five quarters to now to then offer, say, a SaaS architected product and you know the marketing and everything with it.
0: No, so, so, so we went from about 5% subscription mix before we announced the transition at the uh-huh. end of 2018. And this was after kind of two pilots that we ran with teams over the second part of 2018. So if you look at the, the full 2018 year, we had about 6% subscription mix. Uh-huh. We moved to 99% subscription mix by Q1 of 2021 so actually five quarters we worked in 2018 to get everything ramped and get mm-hmm. everything ready but in five quarters we went from six percent to 99 percent.
2: oh i see so you started reaching out to customers and started transitioning them for perpetual over to a subscription pricing plan
0: so We one of the things that we put a lot of time in is trying to figure out whether we would go to existing customers and force a conversion mm. and we didn't want to do that because okay they were paying maintenance, that's still part of the OPEX kind of line mm-hmm. item. So it, and because we knew that there were so many additional licenses for us to sell, it made a lot of sense to offer them upsell with a subscription model. So we had many customers that have hybrid it for it's mm-hmm. one OPEX line item, but they have licenses under perpetual that they're paying maintenance for. And they just have additional licenses that they're paying with subscription. So we didn't force any customer to, to, to make that conversion. And we were able through the upsells and selling to new customers go that quickly now one of the most interesting facts is that our expectation that new customers would actually buy more licenses in that first initial purchase exceeded our expectation we we have new customers now buying more than double the number of licenses that they bought under perpetual so it used to be between two to three licenses we're seeing new customers consuming so much more of the platform and since then we've come out with additional licenses and we came out with a bundling offering to try and simplify the whole selling process but the whole notion of consuming more has really helped us in actually selling them even more later on
2: okay so i see so new customers you could offer SaaS pricing SaaS product say expansion opportunities renewal opportunities come up with your perpetual license base offering them potentially then a SaaS product so maybe a will hybrid there And then I assume that's just a, then a transition over time as those contract renewals come up then to, to get them more onto a SaaS pricing platform.
0: Our transition at the time wasn't to a SaaS platform, it was moving from perpetual to on-prem subscription. Okay. Selling basically kind of the same functionality, but in a leasing model as opposed to owning it for the company.
2: Okay. Well, that's a great experience. I mean, because a lot of companies go through that are contemplating that. So, so maybe as we wrap up here with this final question and maybe you can re wrap up with this perpetual transition, but if you had one piece of advice to give to modern finance leaders, what would it be?
0: That's a tough one. I, I think there, I'll mention two things. Sure. One is don't be afraid to dig into the data. I think that the more, you kind of pull your sleeves and and get into the details, the better the decisions that you can make and the more confident you are with the decisions that you can make. So that would be kind of number one. And number two is try and talk to other peers. I I can tell you that when I I kind of got the CFO position, I was able to talk to CFOs in other companies and they were extremely helpful with some kind of the guidance that they were provided. I do the same today with kind of new CFOs that reach out. And I'm ha- always happy to talk to CFOs and VP finance and any, anyone in, in the finance department that because there's so much knowledge that you can kind of bounce ideas off and enjoy. And it's always beneficial for, for both sides. So that would be my second, my second comment on that.
2: That's great. So don't be afraid to dig into the data. Talk to your peers. And then also, I love this, especially when you're at a $400 million company plus hunches don't always correlate with the data. So I love that. So Guy, thanks for being on the show today. And just wanna end with, if someone does wanna reach out to you, how can they find you online or connect with you online?
0: So they can send me an email, Guy veronis.com, or can look me up in LinkedIn and send me a note there.
2: Okay, well, appreciate it. Thanks for that. If anyone does wanna reach out network or seeking some CFO advice. And again, Guy, thanks for being on the show today.
1: Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Leaders of Modern Finance podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review. You can see the show notes and all the resources mentioned in today's episode at stamply.com slash leaders of modern finance. Thank you for listening and be sure to subscribe for updates on future episodes. This episode is brought to you by Stampley, the most powerful way to process and pay invoices. Stamply is the only accounts payable automation software that centers communication on top of the invoice so that accounts payable collaborates better with approvers, vendors, and anyone involved in purchases to quickly resolve issues and questions, resulting in 5x faster approvals. Contact us to see why users love Stamply and schedule a demo at stamply.com.